This episode of Performance Anxiety features the original most interesting man in the world. He owns French West Vaughn Public Relations Firm. He's part owner of the Daytona Tortugas Minor League Baseball Team. He's on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Board of Trustees. And he's just recently begun a production company called Pre-Productions. That's P-R-I-X. His name is Rick French. He's a friend of mine. I'm very lucky to bring you guys one of the nicest, most interesting people I've ever met. Rick French. Please enjoy. And don't forget to follow the Daytona Tortugas on Instagram and Facebook and vote for the nominees this year in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at rockhall.com. All right, this is uh, Rick French uh, with the Daytona Tortugas, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and uh, uh, burgeoning film producer, or maybe not. But uh, you're listening to my friend Mark Shea and Performance Anxiety. Thanks for the understanding. <laughs> no Might be the first time I've ever done a podcast or any other interview by candlelight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's uh, wow. So you, there's no power anywhere in your neighborhood. Yeah, you know, it seems it seems to have gone out in about a uh, four driveway square <laughs> <laughs> area. Now, I mean, it, it's really just near our house. It's it's. Um, it's not, uh, you know, if you go a half a mile up the road, they have power, and a half mile the other way, they have power. So it seems like it's about a one square mile area. Oh, jeez! And uh, it's not weather related. I think somebody must have uh, struck a construction or electrical line or something like that and knocked it out. It was supposed to come back at eight fifteen, then eight thirty. So we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> What I want to do with this is definitely talk about uh, how you got your start in basically everything you're doing because you do PR, you're in the, on the uh, board of trustees for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and you've got a new production company that's working on a movie about Buddy Holly. So that all started with the PR firm, right? It did. Yeah, sure did. And how did you get your start in public relations? So I was a journalist uh, when I when I graduated college, and I I um, spent several years um, you know pursuing that vocation before an opportunity in PR came along in, in corporate America, and decided to uh, get the experience in that and, and and enjoyed it. Enjoyed helping shape stories rather than simply reporting on them, and um, and kind of stayed along that career path and, and made a few. Uh, transitions from corporate to agency and back to corporate and back to agency and eventually started my firm, French West Vaughn, almost 22 years ago now. And now it's grown into one of the 15 largest independently held uh, PR firms in, in North America. And and uh, we, we've done all right with it. It seems like it was a decent career move. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I mean, you're on my podcast right now, so yeah. Um, <laughs> but... Which, which is a really nice place to be. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Um, and this is one of the the unusual shows that I'm doing because I I've met you before, and I'd like to think we're we're kind of more we're friendly, we're, we're friends, and um, this absolutely. Is, and one of this is you're one of the few people that I've had on the show that I've been friends with before coming on the show. I've been really lucky to make some really good friends uh, by people coming on the show and, and staying in touch and, and all, but 
you're one of, I think, two or three people that I actually knew before doing this podcast. So, but I love, I, I love what you do and I love your story. And it honestly, I, I, I follow you on Facebook and it's funny because I know you think that I probably stalk you on Facebook, but I swear that I, I swear <laughs> to God, I don't. What happens, I don't know what happens, but your stories always pop up in my newsfeed constantly. And the thing about it is you're always doing something incredible, something that like, like every day I see a post from you and it like, if it was me, I'd be, each post would be marking three things off of my bucket list, but you're doing, <laughs> you're doing it. So you, you've done, like you said, you've done really well with this, with this uh, PR firm. You've, you're, you're definitely not a lightweight. You've got done with some really big clients like Coca-Cola and Ford and yeah, that's, I mean, that's given you the opportunity to do a lot of things. And one it, of those, it has, well, one of those things that, that really fascinates me is the transition or maybe not really transition is the right word, but the opportunity to be a part of the rock and roll hall of fame, which ties really well into this show because this show's focus is more about music and art over business and sports like the other podcasts. But how, how did you come to be associated with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? What do you, what do, you do there? What's your position there? And, and how does it all work? How did you get involved in it? So, well, let, let me first say that, that I'm, I'm honored to count you as a friend that I knew oh. you before you were famous. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so, so there we go. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, and, and, I, and I always enjoy doing your show, Mark. You, oh, you do a great you. job with, uh, with your show, uh, back from the, the ESPN days in the district and, and now your performance anxiety. I mean, you've done, you've done really, uh, really great things. And I, and I love the fact that you explore a lot of different topics with it, which I think is, uh, is a spice of life and, and makes it for a very good listening. So well, thank thanks you. for having me on. Oh, thank I you appreciate very much. That. that. That means the world to me. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, you know, so to answer your question though, um, yeah, the, the French was fallen and the agency is, has, uh, afforded me a lot of opportunities to get involved in, in a lot of things that are passion projects for me. And, uh, and music is a big part of that. Um, I, uh, uh, and sit on the the board of trustees of, of three different really iconic music uh, organizations. One, as you mentioned, is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum in Cleveland. Um, the second is the Buddy Holly Educational Foundation, which has its offices in uh, Austin and, and London. And and the third is uh, the Who Cares Foundation's Teen Cancer America, and that was founded by Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend of the Who. And uh, and, you know, we're getting a chance to, to impact and change lives by uh, building teen cancer wards in, in uh, hospitals around the country because there's a gap in oncology care for uh, teens and young adults. You know, they're neither pediatric patients nor are they adults, and so they have different needs. And so the fact that Roger and Pete got behind this and uh, and a group of us in support of their their ideas and their mission and help build it out has really been a, a really satisfying thing. So, you know, but but it, it did start with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and that was, um, gosh, 12 years ago, I believe. Um, I was on a trip to uh, uh, to China doing some uh, um, trade uh, work uh, in advance of the Beijing Olympic Games, and. Okay. Uh, 
you know, I was I was there with an official delegation, and uh, and during that trip, I had an opportunity to spend a lot of time with a small group that that went over there, and and one gentleman in particular was also in the PR industry, just coincidentally, and uh, he owned the oldest PR firm in America, and uh, we were talking about Cleveland and uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he was telling me that he was not coming back with the official delegation. He was going to spend a few extra days in China in China because uh, he had the opportunity to see the Rolling Stones first mainland show in China in 25 years. Jeez. And I said to him, wow, that sounds like a great gig. If you're ever looking to uh, uh, expand the board uh, geographically or with different skill sets, you know, keep me in mind. And it was one of those kind of throwaway comments over a few beers one night. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and he remembered it. And six months later he came back to me and said, uh, you remember that conversation? And I said, which one we had, we had a lot of conversations <laughs> over 10 days. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and he said to me, the one about, uh, your interest in the rock and roll hall of fame. And, um, and I said, Oh yeah. And he said, well, we are looking to expand the board and looking, you know, it, it was fairly Cleveland centric at the time. And would I be interested in, in standing for nomination? And, and he prefaced it with the, in asking the question, he said, and by the way, I can put your name forward, but you're probably not going to, uh, he invited. I said, well, thank you for making it sound so appealing to me. <laughs> You're going to put my name forward so I can be rejected. And he explained, well, we're kind of like Supreme Court judges. He said, we, we, we have term limits, but we really don't. He said, the whole board rolls over every three years. So unless you're not participating and meeting your obligations as a board member, you, you know, essentially could, can be on it for life. And so, uh, there's not a lot of circling off of the board, but but um, we do have a seat available because we've made the decision to um, to circle some of the artists who are on our board off into an ex officio status because they're too busy touring and recording and never show up for board meetings. And, <laughs> that makes you know, sense. As I think I've told you before, he's uh, he said, and so we're we're moving Eric Clapton off the off the board. <laughs> and would you be interested in 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 standing for his seat? And I almost fell over in my own seat uh, <laughs> and, and said, sure. But I also I also kind of understood that um, there were a lot of names being put forward and uh, there was only one board seat to fill and a lot of people with a lot of connections to the music industry and and commerce would, were interested in it. And uh, it was like interviewing for a job. It really was. I oh, went wow. through a series of interviews and um, I'm sure they tested my music knowledge. One of the things they asked me was, what was my, uh, my favorite album of all time? And, and I'll give you the answer here, but, um, some of your listeners might think he never should have got on with that answer. Uh-oh. Um, but, but, but my answer was, uh, meatloaf's bat out of hell. And, uh, uh, which by the way is one of the five biggest selling albums of all time. But that's still, true. <laughs> uh, it would have been more, it probably would have been easier if I'd thrown in, uh, I could have thrown in anyone from the Rolling Stones to uh, Fats Domino to any number of other Little Richard or Chuck Berry or Buddy Holly or the Beatles, but I picked Meatloaf. Well, you could have and, picked Eric uh, Clapton and, and kind of stuck it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I could have. <laughs> uh, but I didn't, and uh, they still like me, apparently. And so uh, that, was, that was 12 years ago, and, and I've had a chance to uh, uh, serve, wear a lot of different hats with uh with the rock hall over the, that 12 year period and it's one of the true privileges to to serve on an institution such as that where you um 
you get to touch so many artists and, and people's lives because, you know, there's that cliche that, you know, music is a soundtrack of our lives, but it's, it's really very true. Yeah. People are very passionate about their music and the artists they like and the artists they don't like. And we hear about all of it. Oh, so, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, every time the, uh, uh, the nomination process comes around for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame classes. You know, we, we get an earful as to who we nominate and who we don't nominate. Then after we nominate who should get in and who isn't worthy of getting in. And, um, so it's an interesting process. And, and of course, we're going through that right now. Uh, you know, yeah. we're about, uh, three weeks away. I think, uh, December, I think we're doing it December 9th, maybe the date. I'm uh, actually, to think about this off the top of my head, might be the eighth, that we're, um, we're, we're announcing the 2019 class. So, um, okay. there, there will, there will be a lot of feedback either way. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I bet now, you know, so you're on the nomination committee. Yeah. So, well, the way it works is that the trustees are, uh, grouped into, um, different subgenres to explore, uh, different genres of music. Okay. And, um, and so, you know, we, we're, um, I, I am on one of those committees and, and I, um, there's a certain confidentiality that we have to maintain in terms of which committees and so on. And that's because uh, uh, they, they want us to be free from outside influence because as you might imagine, uh, whether it's record labels or managers or others will, will try to court favor. So, yeah. um, we have to be a little circumspect in terms of what we share, but, uh, there's genres that we, um, uh, that we are responsible for researching and bringing forward and working with, uh, um, uh, all of our board, our nominating committee, our artists, all the people that, um, that are involved in helping create the slate. And then, uh, then we do also get the privilege of, of being a voter and, uh, in casting our votes. Oh, and, cool. uh, I turned mine in, uh, a few weeks ago. And again, it's the same thing. You're, you're, you're really not supposed to divulge who you voted for. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's a fun process. You know, we, we look forward to it every year and, um, we're like, we're fans too. So <laughs> there are artists that have never been nominated that, um, that we'd like to see nominated that are our personal favorites, but that's, that's not how it works. Right. Yeah. And, and you recently opened it up to, uh, uh, get the public involved in, and then that, was that just last year that that was, that that first happened or was it the year before? Um, yeah, I think we're, um, I think the public vote has been around now. I believe this is the fourth or fifth year, okay. actually. Um, time flies, flies fast. Yeah. Um, but I think it's the fourth or fifth year. And, and to the public's credit, they've, they've, they've done pretty well in getting it right in terms of the artists that they have identified as the top five have, have generally um, coincided with many of the artists that um, – the rest of the electorate believe should also get in. And so, uh, I know the top fan vote getter each year has, um, has received, uh, induction. And, uh, we'll see if that plays out again this year. Right now, um, I, I have to look at the most recent and I'm sitting here doing this in the dark, uh, <laughs> doing your podcast because the power is out at my home. So I, I 
it's the first podcast I've ever done by candlelight. <laughs> but I, uh, I, I otherwise I would go into my computer and uh, and check the current uh, ballot and how it's uh, how it's playing. But the last I checked, uh, Def Leppard and, and Stevie Nicks were neck and neck for the fan vote. I believe oh, Def nice. Leppard was leading and Stevie Nicks was second. I, I do know among the trustees, and I think it's probably okay to share this. Um, so far, uh, among the trustees, and there's a hundred of us that uh, that vote, uh, roughly that number's a uh, few less than that. Uh, Stevie Nicks is leading our on our percentage of ballots, followed by um, Todd Rundgren, actually. Oh, and then wow. I believe it's, I think it was actually Janet Jackson was third, Def Leppard was fourth, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, Mark, I believe the <laughs> number five was, uh, I have to think about this for a second. I'm trying to remember who was number five when I, when I last looked at it. Well, I, I can, um, we'll run through the, while you're thinking, I'll run through the nominees Oh, it was here. Rufus, it was Rufus and Shaka Khan. Oh, okay. Okay. So, and it was five and the, the zombies were sitting in six, but that could change. That's, you know, uh, trustees and others still have, um, a few weeks in which to submit their ballots along with the rest of the, uh, the electorate and we'll see how it plays out. You know, okay. a lot of the artists, you know, it, it's really interesting when people say the rock and roll hall of fame and they, they think that we as trustees or somebody within it are responsible for who gets in and who, who doesn't. And we're not, we're responsible for working with a number of, living inductees and other people in the music industry to create a slate of nominees. But after that, it truly is a jury of your peers in terms of who gets in because of the, uh, I think there's less than a thousand total votes out there. Over 600 of those votes are uh, current inductees who are living. Oh, and wow. uh, when, when they pass, their vote does not transfer to a family member or an estate or anything like that. But while they're alive, um, they have a vote um, during their lifetime. And so okay. it really requires the support of the of the living artists for you to get into the Rock and Roll Hall. You're not getting in if you don't have the support of your peers, if those who made music um, uh, and, and in and of themselves are, are, have done uh, very well in their craft. If they don't have uh, the respect or don't feel that the artists are Rock and Roll Hall of Fame worthy, it's not going to happen. Okay. Okay. And so this year's nominees, just so everybody knows, we are Def Leppard, Devo, Janet Jackson, John Prine, Kraftwerk, LL Cool J, MC5, Radiohead, Rage Against the Machine, Roxy Music, Rufus featuring Chaka Khan, Stevie Nicks, The Cure, The Zombies, and Todd Rundgren. And I'll tell you what, if, if the zombies get in, my oldest daughter, my, my 15, soon to be 16 year old daughter will be thrilled. She loves the zombies. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, uh, I can't say whether I voted for the zombies or not, but just say, I, I can say that I, uh, uh, I was favorably inclined toward them. Let's put it that way. Um, and they, they've been nominated know, a few times, correct? They have. And, and the truth is, so have a number of these artists. And it's really interesting. Some people will say, well, you guys have nominated the same people over and over and they're not getting in. And, and we're saying, well, 
you have to realize that we only induct on average five. Sometimes if the vote is, if there's ties, six artists a year. And we've had uh, slates that are between 13 and 19 uh, artists deep. Yeah. So, the, you know, in that case, almost 75% won't get in. That doesn't mean they're not worthy. It just means that in that given year, there was a movement in a different direction. And so, you know, when you look at these artists, if I, if I look at this current slate and give you my quick analysis, uh, I'd be happy to go down the list and just tell you what I think and, and just give you a little bit of history there. Yeah. So, you know, Def Leppard, this is the first time that they've ever been nominated. And really, they put out two of the greatest rock and roll anthem albums of all time in Pyromania and Hysteria. I and definitely agree with you. And you know, with 100 million or so records sold, it's amazing that this is the first time that they've been on the ballot. And, uh, uh, you know, I had uh, had the chance to chat with, uh, you know, Joe Elliott uh, when he was on tour with my friends from Journey, and they introduced me to him and the band. Oh, wow. And I told them that, you know, I thought their day would come. Um, uh, th- that they're certainly deserving, and just my opinion is, I think their day will come in a couple weeks. I, I think they're one that probably gets in. Uh, Devo, um, hard to say. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a lot of support from obviously in the new wave uh, era. They um, they were innovative. They were quirky. You know, they're from the uh, Akron, Ohio area. If memory serves me correct. I, yeah, I think and. So. Uh, and, and you know they were they were real forerunners there. So hey, my power just came back on. I'm thrilled. Hey, Look at that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Only ten uh, minutes late. Right, exactly. <laughs> Janet Jackson. You know, Janet has been um, has been nominated several times before, and I actually thought she would have gotten in previously, but it just hasn't happened for her. Um, don't know if this year is the year or not. To be honest with you, uh, yeah. it, it it could happen. Um, I, I just really don't know. Um, you know, I think Janet in her case is one of the things that probably worked against her and it worked against a band like ELO for a long time was the use of backtracks and recorded music and things like that during the live performances. And I think there's a lot of artists who, um, who don't like that. And that uh, that becomes an impediment to some degree to their candidacy. So we'll see with yeah. her. Obviously, she I mean, she I think she deserves to get in. She's a you know pop powerhouse. Oh, yeah. um, she helps she helps expand the tent in terms of uh, the definition of rock and roll. Uh, John Prine. Now, I, I'm not personally a big John Prine fan, but, you know, when Bob Dylan and others say that he was their inspiration and he's one of the great songwriters, he's the kind of artist that. A lot of fans may or may not feel as worthy, but he's an artist artist. Yeah, and exactly. We tend to like artists like that. And that's that he falls into the Leon Russell camp. The I think Lou Reed was a little more commercial than John Prime, but the Lou Reed camp. I mean, one of those that wouldn't surprise me if he got in. Now, I don't know if he will, right. but it my sense is the way that the electric kind of looks at these, he's, he's somebody who could get in Kraftwerk. Uh, Kraftwerk's one that, um, you know, they are 
the godfathers of, you know, the techno movement. And uh, we have put them on the ballot. We put them on the ballot. We put them on the ballot. The problem is no one knows who they are. Yeah. Um, they were they were widely influential. And, you know, if there wasn't a craft work, you don't have a Depeche Mode and you might not even have the Cure and bands like that that were greatly influenced. Yeah. But when it comes to the ballot, it's been really difficult for the electorate to get excited about them. So they're almost like and, a, similar uh, to a John Prine in that sense. Yes. Yeah, but John Prine, I would say, has he has the support of a lot of very, very influential artists. I don't know that Kraftwerk has that same level of support. People recognize mm. who they are and how important they were, but I don't, I don't believe there's the same passion for them as John Prine, okay. but we obviously feel they're worthy, which is why we keep bringing them forward. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, LL Cool J, um, I think this is his fifth nomination. And um, I think the thing, so one of the things that probably works against him is how well he's done outside of, of the music industry with his acting career and so on. It might have uh-huh. it might have marginalized him a little bit in terms of his actual uh, musical contributions. Okay. So, but in saying that, I think he's one that will, will continue to put on the ballot until we get him in. I really <laughs> believe that's probably the case. Uh, MC5. MC5, this is their first time. They've been around for 50 years. They they helped, again, godfather the punk rock movement. Yeah. Um, there are tons of people who think MC5, it's a travesty that they're not in. I don't know if they're going to get enough votes, though, to get in this time, even when they're on. I think they're deserving for sure. But I don't, uh, it's a stacked ballot. And to rise to the top five is not going to be easy. Um, Radiohead. Okay. Radiohead is, I thought last year, if there was one mortal lock to get in, it would be Radiohead because critically they've been called the most important band of the last quarter century by almost every music critic. Yeah. And, and, and I wouldn't disagree with that, but they're a band that's got, you know, Radiohead didn't have huge commercial success, you know, outside of songs like a uh, song like Creep. You yeah. know, you'd be hard pressed to name many Radiohead songs. So if you were a follower of the band, you tended to be very passionate about their live shows and, and so on. But commercially, um, they don't they don't have the name recognition of some other ones. And And the other thing that I think works against Radiohead is that they've been so dismissive of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame oh. and uh, derogatory to it that when you when you take into account and and ask Kiss about this <laughs> because <laughs> you know Kiss for a while and Bon Jovi even for a while were were very dismissive of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because they were. They had bruised egos that they hadn't been inducted when they were ta- when they first became eligible. Okay. And and I think in Radiohead's case, uh, they've kind of said, well, we, even if we were inducted, we're not showing up. Well, you're disrespecting the institution, and you're also disrespecting every one of those other artists in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who are voting every year, exactly. who 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 feel like their induction was the crowning achievement in their career. And what you're saying to those people is we don't care about it. So 
I think if, if that's the attitude, then why should the voters care about them? That's a good point. That's a very good point. And I believe that that's, that's why they didn't get voted in last year. And uh, we'll see if it sticks. It's a little bit like PEDs in sports. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't matter how deserving they are if there's, uh, you know, there's certain other intangibles that go into this. Yeah, they get that stigma. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, Rage Against the Machine, uh, Tom Morello's been a huge uh, uh, supporter. He's, he's a fabulous guitarist. Yeah. Uh, the band, you know, uh, makes political rock and roll. Um, I think they deserve to be in. I think they're sitting in this jumbled group of kind of grunge area bands that haven't quite uh, got their due yet. I mean, you could, you could throw in there Nine Inch Nails. You could throw in Soundgarden, yeah. Allison Chains, you know, um, you know, we kind of had to break the seal in that era with a band like Nirvana. That was the first ballad inductee, of course. Right. Yeah. Um, but then the other ones have had a hard time kind of breaking through. So we'll see. Um, where they where they fall this year. I love Roxy Music. I thought that their stuff was incredibly innovative and they uh I think they're uh they're certainly deserving. Um I I don't know if it's been so long since they put anything out. I just wonder if people will remember um how influential they were. And we'll yeah. see how that one plays. And I think the cure falls to some degree into that same camp. Um, okay. Stevie Nicks, I, I would say, is a mortal lock because she's Stevie Nicks. Yo, and, uh, yeah. You know, she's, she's fronted one of the great rock bands of all time, and, and her solo career has been equally prolific. And uh, she's a great singer songwriter. And, um, and she's still I, so I'd be active. Shocked if, yeah, and still active. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd really be shocked if Stevie Nicks' uh, name isn't called in a few weeks. Um, uh, be floored, but it wouldn't be the first time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, so it leaves us with three. Uh, Todd Rundgren. Uh, I was a Todd Rundgren fan growing up in college. I loved his work with Utopia. He, he's reunited with Utopia. Yeah, you know, the yeah. interesting thing about Todd Rundgren is that he created such progressive music for its day, and he, and he produced and wrote songs for so many other people. His own body of work, his own catalog, didn't have that many real popular songs or commercial songs. You, you'd think that going to a Todd Rundgren show, if you didn't remember what he sang, that there would be um, there'd be a lot of songs you would know, and you'd probably find you were wrong. But um, okay. but his body of work musically is almost unparalleled as a producer and others. In fact, speaking of Meatloaf spat out of hell, he produced it. Oh, okay. Uh, little known fact. So I, uh, that. I think he's one that will get the respect of people universally. And, and my guess is he, he's probably going to get in. Oh, uh, Rufus and Shaka Khan, you know, we, we've, we've nominated Rufus and Shaka Khan over and over. Uh, you know, and I, I think we'll keep putting them forward. That they feel to me a lot like Sheik and Nile Rodgers. Yeah. Um, we, you know, we had to put Sheik on the ballot a dozen times before we finally, and they still never got voted in. And finally, we said this is a travesty. Nile is one of the great songwriters of anybody's lifetime. Absolutely. And not only with his own band, but with things that you know that uh, today everybody listens to from. 
you know, we are family to Daft Punk stuff to uh, Happy, you know, yeah. by, uh, by Pharrell. I mean, yeah. you know, he wrote it all. And so uh, he needed to get in. And Rufus and Shaka Khan kind of fall into that same same category. You know, her voice was amazing. Okay. Um, but again, in a stacked ballot, they have a hard time kind of that soulful music sometimes breaking through. And, and then we come to your, your daughter's band, yeah. the zombies. <laughs> yeah. uh, leaving that last but not least. So the zombies, <laughs> from where I sit, um, I think are, are deserving. But there's a really interesting thing about the zombies. Most people don't realize, even though the band has been around for 50 years, that the band that most people identify as the zombies, the core members, only made three albums together. Oh. And... And they're, they're a lot like um, Cream is a good analogy. Okay. You know, Cream with uh, uh, Ginger Baker, Jack Bruce, and Eric Clapton only made two albums. But they were one of the most influential super bands. They were really the first super band ever created. Right, yeah. They created some of the most influential music. The Zombies kind of fell into that. You know, they're part of the British Invasion. They created three seminal albums and then a number of them went off and did other things. And the zombies kind of existed, but lost the mojo for a long time. So when you look for a deep, deep body of work, you don't really have it from the core members of the band. And I think that's one of the reasons it took so long for them to be brought forward. And the fact that there are just so many deserving artists that, um, that I think you could argue deserve consideration. So I, I believe that the zombies have a, a real shot. Um, they were pretty close in their previous uh, nominations, and I guess we'll just have to see what the electorate, uh, you know, what the mood of them is this year. Yeah. So there, there, there's your entire slate. Now, I, what you said about the zombies, I wonder if something like that would be the case when, let's say, a band like Alice in Chains is, is ready to be nominated because they came out with three albums with Lane Staley that were just that pretty much defined the era. And then he died and then they didn't do anything for, you know, 15 years or so, 10, 15 years. And then brought in the new singer, William Duvall and have put out three albums with him. So he's pretty much got the same amount of uh, content as, as Lane Staley does, but it's, it's more Jerry Cantrell's band now, but I mean, it's, you just wonder if the, what they're known for is are just those basically those three albums, and I wonder if that would it would have a similar effect on on a band like that. I, I think it does. I, there's not a lot of bands that are like AD, ACDC where you can seamlessly transition from a Bond Scott to a Brian Johnson. Yeah, and and on your very first album coming out after Bond Scott's death, you put out Back in Black. <laughs> yeah, right. One of the great rock albums of all time. That doesn't usually happen, and, and and the audience usually isn't particularly receptive. Yeah, so, exactly. So it it does create some some challenges uh, when when the core members don't create a deep body of work now. That's not a requirement, but this is a Hall of Fame, and it is a lifetime achievement. And if you've only got a shallow body of work, then it's kind of hard. Now, you could almost make that argument with Nirvana, right, uh, yeah. with Kurt Cobain's death, except 
the difference is they, well, they didn't define the grunge rock movement. They, their um, bursting on the scene literally made it explode into public consciousness with one of the, you know, the greatest albums of all time. And so, you know, it's, you can look at that and say, even though the body of work isn't particularly deep, it it's something that was so important that that uh, it can't be overlooked. In in the case of somebody like Allison Chains, if you're if you don't have the deep body of work to look over, then did the body of work that they did put out there did was it so groundbreaking and so different, or was it just following a particular trend of the time? And that's something that gets looked at and debated and analyzed. So did you, so did they set the trend or follow the trend? Right. Okay. Okay. Now I was looking on on the website for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they've got this message. It says, Congratulations to all fifteen nominees. Show your support for their entry into the Hall of Fame by voting daily in the fan vote presented by Clipshaw Clipsh Audio. I I know I can't pronounce that correctly. Clips. Yep. Read uh, read official nominee bios and download curated playlists featuring the recommended discography of each nominee. Who gets to curate those playlists and the discographies? Because I want that job. I mean, that would be the <laughs> best. I could sit there all day. And even if it's a band I don't like, I, I could sit there and research it and pull out great stuff and have a blast doing it. So that would, that would be like my dream job. It, who gets to do that? We have, we have an amazing curatorial staff. Um, we ha- we have people literally on staff who uh, who make those decisions. Who do uh, they're, they're doctors, literally doctors in uh, oh, uh, in music theory and education, and they do a lot of uh, in the in the museum arts uh, fields and so on. Uh, their job out. is is to study this all day long and live it. And um, I I think I can speak reasonably intelligently about this, but they make me look like I don't know anything about music. <laughs> uh, that their, their knowledge is so deep about who influenced whom and they're, um, they're amazing to talk to. Uh, it's one of the great things. If you, if you get up to Cleveland and get a chance to tour the rock and roll hall of fame, you know, our docents and so on have, um, are really highly educated because they've worked under the, guiding hand of our curatorial staff and it's amazing the depth of knowledge that uh that these people have about uh rock and roll and the music industry in general after the votes are cast and and the nominees are decided do do you tell the nominees well in advance or is it kind of a like an award ceremony where you hear the nominees and then boom 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 everybody finds out at the same time well we don't tell them they are being nominated until, you know, t- usually 24 hours before. Okay. And as, as far as those that are elected, it's usually the same thing. Oh, cool. Um, we're giving them, we're giving them a heads up, you know, the day before. I mean, our, the ballots are due. I remember, I believe the balloting closes December. I can't remember if it's eighth or ninth and we're literally announcing it within. Um, 24 to 48 hours after. Uh, 
Oh, wow. So we, we give, we give, uh, the electorate every chance to get their ballot in up to the very last minute. And sometimes the balloting is so close that those last day ballots tip the balance as to who gets in or who doesn't. So we don't get out ahead of ourselves in notifying anyone. Uh, we're generally telling them or their management, you know, the night before we're making the announcement when, when all the ballots have been counted. Oh man, that's, that's, that, I like that. That's awesome. And then after that, there's usually a, a concert after the ceremonies, correct? And, and you get to, I guess one of the great perks about being on the board is that you get to actually attend these concerts. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's, a, that's the annual Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, induction ceremony. And, uh, that this year, I believe is March. I have to look up the date. It'll, it's, so we make this announcement in December and then it takes time to assemble the, you know, get the acts there and work on who, who's going to induct them. If you have deceased artists, who's going to perform the music of somebody, okay. um, the collaborations, it's, it's like pull, pulling together the Grammys or any other award show this year. The, um, I think the date of the inductions, I believe it's, March 29th, but I'm, I'm saying that off the top of my head. It might be the 30th, but okay. it's 29th or 30th. It's at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. And okay. we, um, uh, every other year we, we flip the induction between New York and Cleveland. This year it's, it's in New York. And, uh, yes, I, I do have the opportunity to, uh, uh, to attend every year. Although it's, it's funny. Everyone thinks, oh, being on the board of trustees, you must, uh, get to go and yes you do get to go but you get to you get to go for the privilege of paying a lot of money for your ticket because <laughs> even all of us who are trustees um you know uh have got to uh, uh meet our obligations in that regard it, right. it's such an in-demand ticket so wow. um yeah it's it, but it, but it's an amazing amazing experience because it's more than just that night there's usually several days of events and parties and and other things that uh, that we get to be a part of the rehearsals. You know, to me, the rehearsals are my favorite part of inductions. Um, oh, yeah. By the time by the time I have watched any of these artists perform the hits for the induction that then later gets aired, usually a month or so later on HBO, um, I've already seen them rehearse that song rehearsals numerous times, and I love it oh, man, because they'll awesome. work on the arrangement. I remember sitting at the Barclays Center. It's probably, I have to go back and look at the induction year. This might have been five years or so ago. But it was the year that Cat Stevens was being inducted. And okay. when, when I sat there in the Barclays Center and watched Cat Stevens, who had not played a live show in the United States for decades, rehearse, uh, you know, Father and Son and, uh, Moonshadow and the yeah. various songs he was contemplating playing on that night. And he was performing with the uh, Harlem uh, choir and it was remarkable. I could have sat there and listened to him perform, <laughs> for example, father and son 50 times over and I wouldn't have gotten tired of it. Oh, um, and, and, and to that, um, I've got a funny story from many years ago um, when Neil Diamond was being inducted. Um, we, that's just when we held it in a much smaller venue rather than the, uh, the Barclays Center. We were at the Waldorf Astoria Ballroom, which oh. only seated about a thousand people. Oh, wow. And I was at rehearsals and, uh, this is the same year 
if memory serves me correct, and I hope I'm not stating this wrong, I think it's the same year we inducted Madonna, Leon Russell. I'm trying to remember who went in in that particular year. There were, it was a good class, but, but Neil Diamond came in and he had just finished a, a tour in Australia. So he flew in and he was a little late for his sound check and his rehearsal. And he got there and he, you know, he's trying to keep his energy level up. He's jet lagged. And at that point, because he was delayed, most of the trustees and others who were there had just kind of gone back to their rooms or went into the city and were doing other things. And I decided to stick around with a couple of my friends on the board. And uh, Neil came in. And there were very few people in the room other than the stage people and Paul Schaefer, the backing band. And so he said, okay, I'm ready to go. And he got up there and he starts singing Sweet Caroline, but he didn't have any background singers. And so he walks out and says, hey, would you guys get up on stage and sing background with me on this? I need, I just need to hear the background on it. And oh, we rehearsed Sweet Caroline with him. And uh it was the most amazing experience, oh, right? Wow. We've all sang it in ballparks, right? Yeah, Around yeah. the country, <laughs> right? But we actually got to get up there and sing it on stage with him, just, oh. and, and he thanked us for it. And then it was funny because the night he performed it, everybody was up and singing out of their seats, right, at the tables <laughs> and tuxedos. And and he um, he walked out into the crowd and was holding the microphone out, and everybody was singing, and, and then he uh, – he said, that was so much fun. Let's do it again. We started over and everybody cheered wildly. And I'm yeah. sure Paul Schaefer, the rest of our production people were thinking, hey, we're on a time schedule here. But it didn't matter. We started the song all over again. And he oh, sang it again. And if he had said, let's do it again, everybody would have done it again. Um, it was so much fun. But uh, yeah, there are those priceless moments like that where you that see really special collaborations or special moments. And yeah, I feel privileged to uh, to represent a great institution and be a part of it. So how do the collaborations come about? Is that something that the artist decides who they want to induct them, or is it something that the hall gets to decide on? Yeah, we uh, we ask the artists if they have a preference for who induct, would induct them, uh, okay. they would like to see, and, and then we reach out to those individuals. If for some reason they're not available, uh, we we try to work closely with the artists to make sure that somebody inducting them is somebody that they would like to, to have that honor. And so um, we, we try to honor that in every instance where we possibly can. And you've, now you've recently started up a production company. And I, wanted, I, have. I want to talk a little bit about that because uh, you, you've already released one uh, film and you're working on a second. Uh, you've, uh, you, so you premiered the True Don Quixote. And that's starring Tim Blake Nelson. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? What's that about? And is it, is this actually the first project for the, 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 the uh, production company? Yes. Uh, so, uh, so I had provided some, some uh, uh, financing to some other um, motion pictures that I, I was not um, necessarily getting credits for because I wasn't involved in the creative development of the projects. But okay. I decided um, a while back to begin to get more creatively involved as somebody who creates content every day, whether it's press releases or advertising or something, you know, we're, we're well-versed in doing that. And, and so I got involved uh, as executive producer of the true Don Quixote. And, and it's, a, it's a fascinating project because 
for a couple reasons. Uh, first, Cervantes' uh, Don Quixote is the second biggest selling book of all time behind the Bible. Wow, yeah. But much like Sgt. Pepper's was to music, Don Quixote was to film. Sgt. Pepper's was considered the unplayable live album. Right, right. And really, the and, and a lot of people don't realize the Beatles never performed Sgt. Pepper's. When Cheap Trick undertook the idea of trying to play Sgt. Pepper in its entirety, it was groundbreaking. And they did it out in Vegas and did an amazing job with it. Well, in the case of Don Quixote, um, you know, Terry Gilliam had been trying to make Don Quixote for nearly 30 years, or the man who killed Don Quixote. And it was, you know, there was a documentary made on his attempts to make it because it was, there was so much drama and twists and turns in that story. Oh, wow. It, it, the reason it was considered a, a, an almost unmakeable movie is that you've got a 700-page book. That's a lot of ground to cover in a film. Right. The second part is you have to get into the mind of Don Quixote and bring that to life on film and juxtapose his craziness against everybody else's sanity. And that's a hard thing to do as a filmmaker. And and then you try to do it as a period piece, like Terry Gilliam tried to do it, and it becomes a monstrosity and very difficult to pull off. Okay. So Don Quixote as a book had a reputation as kind of an unmakeable movie, and there has never been one that has ever premiered in, in North America until uh, we premiered the true Don Quixote two weeks ago at the New Orleans Film Festival where we won the Audience Choice Award. And... Um, and, and so, thank you. Yeah, it, 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 it's a it's a touching, funny kind of black comedy. And the way we chose to create uh, the film and, and tell the story was not to try to do it in a, in a period of, in the 1600s, but instead put Tim Blake Nelson in a period in today's modern day where he gets into his books and and develops his own form of kind of dementia and, and convinces himself that he's a, uh, you know, 16th century knight. Oh. And, uh, and then he recruits, uh, you know, in, in his neighborhood, uh, a hapless, uh, squire, um, to go along with his, uh, his insanity. And, okay. and, and they they go on this great journey all within about a two square mile area of their suburban home area. Oh, wow. So we decided to treat it in a very different way. And what's interesting about the film is that as it goes along, his un, his insanity, so to speak, becomes more understandable and more beloved and you kind of realize, and I think the audience begins to realize that his, his delusions are harmless. He's not hurting anybody, but he's bringing everyone around him into a less mundane world and to a better place. And at the end, even when they're trying to, not to ruin the ending, but when, when they're trying to convince him that he's not a knight, you kind of get the idea of don't do that. Don't convince him. He's living in a better place in that mindset than his, his boring, his boring world. And, and so it was really fascinating when we, when we had the, the premiere because 
uh, we were the uh, the closing film on the Saturday night of the film festival, and there was much anticipation. And you know, when you make a film like this, you don't know whether the audience is going to love it or hate it. We're all so close to it yeah. that we feel like it's a good film, but you just don't know. And there's trepidation. So we we debuted the film, and at the end of it, there was a panel discussion with Tim Blake Nelson, uh, Jacob Badalon, one of our co-stars, who. Um, he is in the Spider-Man franchise okay. um, and is kind of a rising star. And Ann Mahoney from The Walking Dead. Right, and right. so we bring them on stage and we, we had the film critic from USA Today and uh, NPR. And he's famously cynical as a critic. His many critics are, right? Right, right. So we got up there at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the film and the lights come on and our cast and our director are there and we're, we're sitting there kind of waiting for his analysis. And he said, I'm, I'm trying to, trying to figure out how to describe this movie and your heart sinks. <laughs> and, uh, he said this, there's this hesitation, this, this, this wonderful movie. Wow. And all of a sudden he said, wait, did he just say wonderful? <laughs> uh, and, he said, I sat there through this movie and I was trying to draw the best parallels I could to this. And he said, um, and I've got two that just instantly come to mind. He said, the first is one flew over the cuckoo's nest, which oh, wow. I'm instantly thinking, okay, wait, that one best picture is, and is on AFI's list of the 50 greatest movies of all time. Right. Okay. Yes. And then he said, and the other one was, Oh brother, where art thou? which I'm sure was an easy analogy because <laughs> yes. Tim Blake Nelson was in that. Yeah. But that was also, that won the Golden Globe for Best Picture and was an Academy Award nominee. And I said to myself, did he just compare us to one of the great films of all time and one that was a Best Picture nominee? And also you know, okay. an adaptation of Homer's Odyssey. So that, that you know, that, right. that kind of fits right Absolutely. in. It, it really does. And, and so there was this, uh, you went from this period of trepidation to it reminds me of Sally Field's line. Uh, <laughs> you like me, you like me, you really, really like me kind of thing. And, and so, yeah, we're excited. So we, um, you know, we've been meeting with distributors, listening to their offers for the film, trying to decide how they would market it, when they would release it. And we expect to be uh, forging a distribution deal pretty soon and, and having a, uh, what we expect to be a broad release of the film in 2019. So we're very excited about that. And then you mentioned I've got a documentary going that, uh, about the world hunger epidemic and ways in which uh, NGOs around the world are, are partnering up to try to eradicate hunger. And we're, we're making that in partnership with the United Nations to tell the story of how eradicating world hunger by the year 2030 is possible. And so um, that is uh, that is a working title right now called um, A Hole in the Floor, and there, there's a reason okay. for that. Um, when somebody's in poverty, they tend to fall through the hole in the floor is the phrase. Okay. So, so that one's in production. And then uh, you mentioned Clear Lake, and Clear Lake's a really, really exciting project. Yeah, um, this, I'm, I'm excited to learn more about this because I, I know very little bit about it. I'm believe, am I saying this with, with its pre-production? Pre-productions, yeah. Uh, so, so I partnered up with a, a really dynamic screenwriter and director by the name of Patrick Shanahan, and we we formed a production company together. And you know, being on the board of the Buddy Holly Education Foundation, I've got a pretty deep um, understanding of Buddy's legacy and history, and felt like, you know, it had been uh, 
six, it'll be 60 years in February since Buddy Holly's death. Wow. Um, outside of Clear Lake. And it'll have been, it's 40 years this year since, uh, Gary Busey had his Academy Award winning role in the Buddy Holly story. And I felt like uh, enough time had passed that a lot of younger generation didn't really understand the story of Buddy Holly and his importance. And, and what really struck me was, and, and how the genesis of this movie came about is that I was sitting with a friend of mine, who Clarence Collins, who was founder of Little Anthony and the Imperials, okay, yeah. and uh, another band in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and we were having dinner in Las Vegas. This was just almost a year ago, uh, in December. Uh, Clarence's nephew, um, uh, Pepe Willie, was put together Prince's first band and was married to Prince's cousin. And he took a young prince into his home at 15 years old and taught him to play guitar. So they have this incredible musical uh, history in that family. And I had met uh, Clarence in the year that he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was 2009. And we've maintained a friendship for the, you know, the last decade or so. And so I always, when I go to Vegas, I always try to get together uh, with him for dinner or a drink or a glass of wine or something like that. Well, we were sitting down at dinner and I was telling him about joining the board of the Buddy Holly Education Foundation, and he started telling me stories about the tour that took place immediately before the Winter Dance Party, which was called the Biggest Show of Stars Tour. Right. And I wasn't really aware of that tour. And he said, well, that was the real tour. He said the Winter Dance Party only took place, it, it, it began and ended so quickly because we had most of the same acts on the same bill that went on the biggest show of, t- of stars. And that was the first uh, really multiracial tour oh. where you had blacks, brown, and whites all on the same bill. That was pretty unheard of during the times and also traveling through the deep South and so on. And he started telling stories about segregation, about the uh, unlikely friendship that he and Buddy had struck up during that tour and some stories, and I was just fascinated. So I went back and and told a couple people on the Buddy Holly board that I work with, including uh, the head of BMG Music that holds the catalog rights about this dinner I had, and I said, you know, what do you guys think about the idea of us remaking that motion picture and, and telling it through a different lens? And and really the story during these racially divided times that we're living in now about, you know, this period back in the late 50s where you had a, a black artist from uh, from Brooklyn and a white artist from Lubbock, Texas, find themselves so they have absolutely nothing in common other than their love of music and how they find and build a friendship during this 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 tour and how then the tour, that tour ended, and that tour ended really at the holidays. And the artist went home for the holidays, and then there were certain, uh, the promoter uh, decided that, look, we, we dealt with such trouble with some of these, um, uh, some of these cities that we were going into that let's just bring it down to a smaller number of artists and send them through that tour of the Midwest that ultimately culminated in, in, uh, what happened outside of Clear Lake. And so I felt like the story itself was one that deserved to be told because 
if you look at it, first of all, you can cover a lot of great musical history and ground, and, and that works well for me as somebody who's involved with all these musical organizations. But, but I like the idea of saying, look, some of the same things that we're dealing with now, we were dealing with literally 60 years ago. And, yeah. and times really haven't changed in a lot of ways. As much as we've evolved, we haven't evolved. Right. And we haven't evolved to the extent that we should have. And uh, there's still racial inequalities and, and things. And, and Buddy Holly himself, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing when you get into his story. He really didn't see color. He really didn't. He, right. uh, he, was, he was an artist during a time where everybody else was so focused on race and you can't play with black musicians. He was bringing black musicians in to back him. And, um, you know, he, he kind of made his chops going over the other side of the tracks in Lubbock, Texas. Lubbock was literally a racially segregated town that was divided by a railroad track that went through the center of town. Wow. And all the whites were on one side and all the blacks were on the other. And, uh, you know, he would routinely and, and get grounded for it, you know, crossover <laughs> and, and, and play in black cafes and so on with, with artists. And, and so it wasn't surprising that he and Clarence developed this rapport and friendship on that tour. And, um, we just thought that, uh, it made, there were some fascinating stories that came out of it that people didn't know. And the timing would be right to um, to make this movie, and so that's what we're doing. You know, and it's really interesting too because when you look at the success just to here in the last month with movies like A Star Is Born and Bohemian Rhapsody and things like that, yeah. there's obviously a yearning among the the public for um, for films that have a great music soundtrack. And you know that period of with. Uh, Buddy Holly and the Crickets and Little Anthony and the Imperials and oh, Little Richard and Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley. I mean, there's so much musical inspiration to draw from. Oh, yeah. And, and, and we've written a, a, just an incredible script. I have it sitting on my desk right in front of me oh, and uh, looking forward to, uh, to making the film. You know, we, we expect to begin casting here uh, very, very quickly in the next probably 30 days or so. Oh, wow. I'm trying to get um, get some of the primary cast in place, and we plan to begin shooting this uh, fairly early in 2019. Excellent. How long of a process do you think that would be uh, till from shooting to uh, release? It's always hard to say. The, the easier answer is uh, principal photography is probably five to six weeks of intensive shooting. Uh, okay. The post-production is often about nine months is pretty right. typical. So, you know, if you're doing pre-development then you're in photography and then you're doing post, it takes you a good solid year okay. to make it. And, that, and then really it becomes, if you already have a studio deal, they may already have it on the calendar with a specific release date in mind. Right. If you're making it independently like we intend to do, uh, because we don't really need studio money to make this, then we can go take it to festivals. We can roll it out and we can listen to the offers from distributors as to how they see, like we're doing with Don Quixote, how they would market it, what kind of advertising spend they would put behind it, how many screens we would be debuting in. Does it include international rights? Um, if you can make it independently, you have a lot more control over how the film ultimately makes its way to the marketplace. And so 
that's that's our plan with Clear Lake. That's what we did with Don Quixote. You know, I finished another one already called The Fox Hunter that Patrick and I made that will begin taking the festivals uh, early next year. It's a southern drama. Okay. And uh, so, you know, they... There, there's a lot in the pipeline. There's a few other projects that I've acquired that I haven't announced yet. And uh, I'll save that for, for the next podcast uh, <laughs> if, if you'll invite me back. But uh, Absolutely. Uh, some other really – and, and one in particular that I think that you'll be really excited. It's got a very uh, a big sports backdrop to oh. it. All right. Well, I'm, I'm in already. You got, my, you got my, my ears. I'm on alert for that. And uh, the one thing that I, that I was really – really happy to hear about with, with, with Clear Lake is that you've got the support and, and the involvement of uh, Marielena Holly. We do. And uh, uh, that's she, a big she's thing. She's wonderful. Yes, she, it, it is. Uh, you really, um, you couldn't make the movie without her involvement and her support um, and, and also the support of BMG and Paul McCartney who owns, the BMG holds the U.S. distribution rights and Paul McCartney um, and his publishing company hold the international rights. He's a huge oh. uh, buddy and the crickets fan, and, and we needed the support of those parties to be able to uh, uh, to make this movie. And, and those wouldn't be easy to get if you didn't have and some of the relationships and connections that I've been lucky enough to be afforded through the other things that I'm doing. And so. You know, to your point, like when we started this conversation about the PR firm, one thing kind of begets the other. Yeah. And, and that's what's really allowed this project to come forward. Well, I'm really excited for that. I'm excited to, to get the chance to see True Don Quixote. I'm excited to learn about the other projects you've got going that you're not going to tell me about yet. Um, <laughs> now is, I've kept you for a long time, so I'll, I'll try to wrap up real quickly here. Is there anything on your own bucket list that you actually haven't had a chance to do yet? Cause you've done everything on mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, you sang with Neil Diamond, you know, you, you're part owner of a minor league baseball team, uh, the Daytona Tortugas. So everybody support the Daytona Tortugas. Thank you're, you. on, you're on the rock and roll hall of fame board of trustees. So you get to hang out with uh, Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend with the Who Cares Team Cancer America Foundation. Um, I seriously can't think of anything else that uh, I would want to do. So what, what, <laughs> else, what, what can you possibly do? What, what, what is there left for you to do? Well, you know, um, you're right. I, I feel very blessed to, to have the opportunity to do everything that I've done. I've been able to do in my, in my career and I don't take it lightly or for granted. Um, I, I know how fortunate I am. And, and, uh, so, you know, to answer that question, I, there aren't a lot of bucket list things I, because I, I never created these things as bucket list uh, items in the first place. You know, a right, lot of people do point. that. I, I, I never, I never really think that way. I, um, you know, I kind of take it one day at a, at a time and, um, the opportunities that are presented to me, I um, there's a lot of things that get presented to me every single day, and I um, some some I have time to do and some I don't. I, I guess the one thing that might be a natural uh, evolution is I'd love to walk on stage one day and pick up uh, one of those things called an Oscar. It would be nice to uh, to do that. I um, 
I had the, the great blessing of being uh, inducted into my own industry's uh, Hall of Fame, the North Carolina Media and Journalism Hall of Fame, uh, earlier this year, and then uh, the Raleigh Public Relations Society's um, highest honor just a couple weeks ago. And so I feel like you know, on a personal level, a lot of these things have um, I, I've gotten more than my fair share of recognition. So I'm not um, if I never got anything else, I uh, would live a very fulfilled life. I want to see my family and, and kids enjoy it and be happy. But I, I think that, um, you know, for me personally, if I was trying to look at that one thing that would be a real stretch or reach goal, maybe that's it. Maybe it's the Academy Award. Uh, <laughs> although I'm not, I'm not setting out making movies with that being the goal or that in mind. Right. I, I don't, uh, I don't really, um, ever ever do that uh, i want to make uh make films that i'm proud to have my name associated with and and hopefully people will like them and if uh if they don't i hope they don't throw their popcorn at me <laughs> well with all your your, your musical connections uh, with the rock and roll hall of fame and you know being friends with with several musicians getting a chance to see guys a lot of people live and and, and a lot of interactions do you actually play music yourself Oh, I'm an amazing kazoo player. <laughs> and, and, and really, you should see me on tambourine. Like it's, it's, it's really, really impressive. Well, we could, I, I play um, a wicked triangle, so we should get together. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I have um, uh, just a dozen or so signed guitars by artists who are friends that uh, – and, and I, I even had Rob Thomas uh, give me one uh, one night and – wrote to me Rick play because he wanted me to learn some of his songs and I still <laughs> never learned them. Uh, my, my daughter knows his song. She's great on guitar and uh, can sing, sing beautifully, but, uh, but that's not me. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not a musician. I, I but I play one on television. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, so what, what I'd say is, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of the great thrills, you know, when I was putting together the, uh, backyard concert that we did for Teen Cancer um, America this summer in Los Angeles. I had the good fortune of being kind of the artist liaison with Ed Sheeran and my friend Don McLean of American Pie um, fame. And, yeah. and uh, it was really fascinating because Ed has publicly stated that Don McLean was his favorite artist. So I called Don and asked him if he would be willing to join the bill, which was the who and, uh, Van Morrison and Ed playing wow. in a backyard. Right? Imagine this full electric concert playing in a backyard <laughs> oh, in a, in a tens of millions of dollar mansion in Pacific Palisades. And, and, uh, so, so when I asked Don if he would do it, then I said, look, Ed's favorite song of all time, and he stated this over and over, is Vincent. And yeah. so maybe you guys could collaborate together and play it. And I worked for months to try to get the two of them together to rehearse it, and their schedules would never mesh. You know, Ed was over in the UK, Don was doing his thing, he was over here. And um, so they hadn't, they hadn't met until the night of the show. Oh, wow. And so I had the great fortune of grabbing Ed by the arm and say, let me introduce you to Don. And, and they talked about it. They said he, and Ed said, so do you want to do this together? And they sat down in a living room and, uh, and rehearsed it together. They worked it through. And I sat there with my cell phone and videotaped it. And I shared it after the concert with 
um, you know, the Teen Cancer America social media channels, and it blew up viral worldwide. The rehearsal, <laughs> which is no big surprise, right? It's Ed Sheeran, who's yeah. the most popular, you know, pop star out there. But it was an amazing experience to sit there and watch the two of them work it through, and it was beautiful on the first take of this thing. They absolutely nailed it together. And when they got out on stage, and they performed that song together. That became the seminal moment of the entire thing. And, you know, Ed played Castle on the Hill, and he played all of his big hits, and the yeah. Who got up there. But the thing that everyone talked about was the collaboration with um, with Ed and Don. And they both then asked me, could they get a copy of my video? <laughs> <laughs> sure, of course. Well, I, <laughs> Are you going to say no to that? You, you know, know, exactly. And, uh, and, and they shared it, and it, it was amazing. So... You know, you get those special moments where you get a chance to do that, and, and that's where you feel really lucky to, um, to get to do those things. But I think you always have to remember that within the context of getting to do those things, um, you know, the real purpose in putting an event like that together is to raise money to benefit teens who are battling cancer. And in the case of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you're raising money to preserve an art form and a legacy for generations of people so that when they come through there, they can understand, um, you know, the importance of artists and who came before their favorite artists that influenced them. So, you know, there's always a greater purpose in, in all of this stuff that we're involved in. And, uh, you know, it's, so it's easy to get kind of lost in the sizzle of everything that, uh, sometimes that I get to do, but I, I try to always remain grounded to the extent that I, you know, I can to, to, um, you know, to remember what the, the true purpose is. Well, how can people keep it, keep tabs on what you're doing with the, the movies you're making, the, uh, the, the cancer foundation, um, everything that you're involved with, whatever you want to get out there for people to, to help support, how can they find those sites, those, uh, social media pages and how can they follow them? Yeah, so so we have uh, we have social media channels under, under pre-productions, P-R-I-X productions, and they can look them up and uh, send follower requests and so on. We haven't put a lot of content on there yet, just because we haven't begun principal photography, we haven't made our casting announcements, but we'll begin doing that soon. Okay. Uh, you can find information about the True Don Quixote. There's been a lot of press uh, about that, and please. Uh, Look for the the release date on that. There's uh, social media channels for that just by Googling it. Um, you know, the Daytona Tortugas, uh, my baseball team, uh, I mean, ESPN has called us America's favorite minor league team because they seem to love the promotions we do. Oh, yeah, you, uh, you guys did a Bob Ross bobblehead. That's fantastic. Yeah, we did, and we and this year we did a, a big Shelbowski one. That's right. Uh, complete, complete with, uh, you know, Jeff Daniels, uh, um, the dude, uh, bobblehead <laughs> with, uh, with lawn bowling and served white Russians. And, uh, so we, we have a lot of fun with, with promotions, which is the essence of minor league baseball. So, 
you know, Daytona Tortugas, uh, you know, uh, we'd love it if people, uh, looked us up and followed us and, and, uh, supported us anyway. They, they feel so inclined. And, uh, you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, pretty easy to find. You know, there's, there's plenty of channels out there. The, the, the Teen Cancer America, we'd love it if people would, um, you know, look up the organization and its mission. And, and the reason that we're doing this and how we're doing it and how it's affecting so many uh, teens' lives. I mean, we were all that age once, and most of us were lucky. We didn't have to deal with uh, something as devastating as a cancer uh, diagnosis. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a lot of us that, uh, that have kids and or have family members that have been impacted by cancer. And, um, you know, so... We uh, would love it if people would learn more about the organization and and uh, get involved in whatever way they they can or feel inclined to do so. Thank you so much, Rick. I really do appreciate your time. I can let you have the rest of your night complete with power. <laughs> complete with power. <laughs> <laughs> It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.